Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. In my 27 years as a Victorian policewoman, I investigated everything from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. Policing taught me a lot about human nature, which I explore in my podcasts with a variety of fascinating guests discussing the human side and impact of crime, not only on their lives, but mine as well. My podcasts are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. If you find yourself affected by my subject matter, please contact Lifeline or any other support, service or person that you feel comfortable with. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs and not everyone will agree with them. I understand that and I hope you do too. Thank you. That's what my life had become. All these really bad and violent things were going on. And, um, yeah, so I have seen seen a lot. My guest, Robin, shouldn't be with us today. For 37 of her nearly 58 years on this earth, she managed to somehow fight six addictions, three of them being drugs, alcohol and gambling. She was addicted to ice for 15 years she really did abuse her body and mind to the limit. So how does a 15-year-old young girl from a large country family become an addict so young? Because she was the victim of violence and sexual abuse as a child, that's why. As a policewoman, I saw the results too many times of young children who'd experienced violence and sex abuse and the lifelong effects that it can have. In those 37 years of addiction, Robin lost her self-esteem, her house, and I'd suggest probably most of her friends. The only friends she would have had were more than likely only friends who supplied her the drugs and alcohol that she sought. And those that turned a blind eye to her gambling addiction, she really has been to the depths of despair. So what was the catalyst for her seeking to change? Because change she has. She has turned her life around completely and she's been clean for almost seven years. She's got an incredible inner strength, which will be obvious as our interview continues. Such is that strength that even though much of her life was spent in an alcoholic haze, since being clean, she's able, she was actually able to manage a bar at one point. Now, that's an incredible strength of character, isn't it? Amazing, in fact. 
Robin's now in a great place, a place that she dreamed of but never thought that she could find. In fact, she said to me the other day, quote, I found the happiness and peace I dreamed of during those 37 years of addiction, unquote. Robin is now an advocate for ICE rehabilitation centres for those struggling with their mental health and those in the grip of an addiction. Robin is proof that you can turn your life around. It's never too late. So thanks for your time today, Robin. And boy, what a woman are you. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Narelle. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, no worries. It's a pleasure, Robin. And just for the listeners, just so they know that Robin... Uh, suggested she contacted me and suggested that her story might be worth sharing. Well, uh, when when she said might and she told me a sto- story, it is worth sharing. You've uh, you really have been to the depths of despair, haven't you, Robin? Um, and then back again, Narelle. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, thanks for uh, joining us. We've uh, had, as per any, it, it, it appears to be any. Thing that has anything to do with technology, there's always an issue with either me or my guest. And between us, we've got we've uh, sorted it out. So anyway, so Robin, you did say in one of our discussions that in your early years as a child, you remember being very scared, sad, and shy. So can you share with us what it was that made you feel that way? Because kids shouldn't feel like that. Uh, sadly for myself and my siblings, Narelle, and my poor old mum, God rest her soul, um, we were living in a household with a very violent alcoholic father and um, we were beaten on a daily basis and I'm not just talking about like a clip across the years, I'm talking about, you know, kicked to the ground, dragged around by your hair, um, you know, black eyes, broken noses, like my poor mum, I don't know how many times she had her nose broken, um, like very viciously uh, beaten. Um, yeah, it was, and, and that's where the sadness and, and the shyness and uh, being scared came from. So, Robin, in those early years, and what are we talking? Are we talking the 70s, the 80s? Where Where are we at? time-wise? Well, I was born in 1965 and so from as early as I can remember, um, there was nothing but violence in in our home. Um, So, you know, I was the youngest of um, 11 children, so it started a long time before that, Narelle. The youngest of 11. So, so I would imagine you would be no different to your your siblings that you were all uh, abused. Would that uh, would that be right? Oh, absolutely. And um, I had some uh, half brothers and sisters, and um, they actually copped it worse than what we did because they weren't my father's biological children. So they actually copped it worse. So. Yeah, I I know how hard it was for me, and so I. I can only imagine how hard it was for them, you know. Robin, do you talk about it with them these days or is that just a a subject that is never brought up? Um, I don't really have much contact with my 
brothers and sisters, sadly. Um, a few of them have passed on because some of them were older than me because mum had three different families. Like she had, she had a son when she was like 14 and then she went on and she met a really nice fellow and they got married and they had five children. And then sadly he passed away on the operating table and um, from anaesthetic and he was 27. And then my mother met my father and they went on to have another five children. And so me and my full, myself and my full siblings, we, um, we're quite a bit younger than the other children. Um, mm. So uh, quite a few of them have passed on. Um, but you'd think something like that would bring um, myself and my siblings closer together. But because of the violence that uh, we saw and that was bestowed upon us, we're actually, um, we don't really have a relationship. Um, we've tried over the years to have a relationship with each other, but we're just all so damaged in a realm. Like, um, uh, uh, yeah, and Robin, you say then that, I might be surprised that you don't have a close relationship. But to be honest, I would be from my experience with family violence and that's investigating it. Uh, as you just said, the, the, the violence creates so much damage. I would be surprised if you were close because it, it actually, well, from what I've uh, um how I've been involved, it divides, it's like a wedge between everybody. Would you agree with that? Uh, absolutely. <clears throat> it's, um, we were just pitted against each other as children, like, um, and it's just, we just don't seem to be able to get on. Like we've tried, you know, I just have one of my siblings in my, my life again recently um, I moved to Queensland here and he lives a couple of hours up the road. I tried to have a relationship with him and it just doesn't work, Narelle. I'm at the point now where I'm just not even going to try anymore, um, which is very sad because I have I have a brother, a full brother that's still alive and I have um, three full, full sisters that are alive and I have um, a half-sister that's still alive and I don't have contact with any of them. And they... Um, they don't really have contact with each other either. Um, and it's very sad, like, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it is, but I can see it, it is so sad. But because you are all so damaged, it's very difficult to form relationships. And I would imagine as life went on, it was difficult for, and let's concentrate on you because we don't know about your siblings, but I imagine it would have been very difficult for you to establish any kind of relationship because of that. Uh, I can't imagine the damage that it must have done to, to what you perceived as a normal uh, family or normal upbringing, you would have seen that as normal, wouldn't you? Oh, absolutely. Like um, that was all I knew all my life was, um, you know, uh, I was 18 when I ran away from home. Um, can, I, can I go back? What was your father's issue? Was it alcohol or was it um, medication? Like do, do you know where the anger and violence came from? Well, he was an alcoholic, but... Mm -hmm. 
<clears throat> excuse me, he passed only passed away about four years ago and I hadn't spoken to him for about 30 years. But after he passed and I found out from some of the other family members that his childhood was worse than ours. Like he grew up in a very, very violent childhood as well. And so um, back in his day when um, he didn't have counselling, he didn't have anyone he could talk to, like, um, you know, it wasn't, it, it wasn't acceptable to talk about things like that back in his day. And so he, he tried to find the answers at the bottom of a um, bottle of alcohol, you know, and um, it's very sad. Like I hated him for most of my life and until I found out recently, like four years ago when he passed what happened to him, I actually felt sorry for him, Narelle. I thought, you know, he did he didn't have anyone to help him and that's all he knew was violence and um yeah it's very sad it's just a vicious cycle that was carried on through a couple of generations you know and until somebody breaks that cycle it won't stop robin and that's why uh the fact that you have broken so many cycles in your life which we will get to but that's how strong you must be like mentally to be able to yes I know that you went through a, a terrible period but um, years and years but to be able to come out of it to where you are now it, it's just unimaginable for us that had a well I would have said a pretty perfect childhood you know I, I never knew that people were like that um, can we go back to so when you were being beaten and abused as you were, did anybody ever say anything like you, if you you know, had your broken nose or your hair was pulled out, did anybody ever say, is everything okay at home? I don't imagine they did because that's not what you did, but did anybody ever try and help you? No, not really. I remember my, um, my mother's... Um uh, mother, my um, <clears throat> my grandmother, she stood up to my father one night and, um, you know, tried to um, fend him off with an empty beer bottle because uh, he was beating mum and us kids. And um, But she's the only person I ever remember standing up to my father because my father was like, he was like a giant. He was like six foot two, six foot three. He was this massive big man and, um, you know, everyone was intimidated by him. No one... Um, no one would sort of like take him on because he was such a big a big man. But um, <clears throat> the neighbours used to ring the police, Narelle, and um, that that could happen on a nightly basis. The police would turn up, and um, funnily enough, my father um, was really good friends with um, a couple of the the police officers that were there, and. Um, one of the police officers went, it went on to become one of the most highest-ranking police officers in Australia, and he used to turn a blind eye to my father's um, violence, and he would come down um, from the police station and he'd say, Fred, you know, we've had a complaint, you know, you, uh, about your wife and um, kids, and... Um, but he would take my father um, back to the pub and um, give him a few more beers and then he would bring him back home and my father would be 
like more affected by alcohol and more angry and then the, the beatings would just continue so um you know we felt like pretty pretty helpless like you know if, if someone's calling the police and the police are coming then they're taking your father away and taking him back to the very place um, where all the problems stem from um you know like it's it was yeah it was just hard to fathom that um you know people were calling the police and they were coming but nothing was getting done like um yeah i mean my father had a really serious car accident and he t-boned the neighbor coming down the road from the pub and um his couple of friendly police officers came and um they covered it up and they told fred to get to get home and they covered it all up and um you know, nothing came of it. And um, so as young children, like, um, yeah, we we just didn't have any faith in the police or, you know, we felt like we're all alone and that's, you know, mm. that's pretty sad. Yeah, we've, we've come a long way, uh, the p- policing with domestic violence, family, domestic and family violence, but we'd need to because... That's what happened in those days, wasn't it, Robin? Like they just turned a blind eye and and I am not making excuses for them but because police did, uh, people, not just police, the community turned a blind eye to it. But to actually take your father to the pub and prime him with more alcohol, that is just unconscionable. I just cannot uh, get my head around that. And did these people, the, these friends of your father's, like did they ever try and help your mum or talk to your mum or it was all about helping your dad? No, I sort of, um, I think people just kept out of it, you know what I mean? Like they'd ring the police because no one knew that they were ringing them, who exactly was ringing them. There was... You know, there's yeah. plenty of people out there that would, would be ringing the police, but no one really knew who actually, you know, did it at that time or that night. Um, but I think people just didn't want to be involved. Like, And not only that, is it was acceptable in those days. That's what you did. The, the husband, it was almost like his right um, to beat his wife and children, you know, like... And we did. We thought it was normal. Like, there was other families that we knew that had problems at home, like nowhere near as bad as us. But, you know, we just thought that that was normal, that, you know, that's how families were because we'd never been shown love. We'd never been treated kindly or had any anything nice, you know what I mean? No, to be honest, Robin, I don't. I understand what you're saying, but I just cannot understand how you can get through something like that. What about your mum, Robin? What's your relationship like with your mum if she's still alive? And if not, what was it like? Well, sadly, my poor old mum passed away when she was 50. And um yeah, that's something that I struggled with too. As Sorry, well. Robin, but no wonder. What? Oh, your mum must yeah. have been beaten black and blue. She was, yes. And um, you know what? Like I miss her, and I sort of, you know, grew grew up without a mum. And um, 
all the she would be so proud of me when I got um, married a few years ago. My brother said to me, he was at my wedding. He said, Mum would have been so proud. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, and but with my mum, in a way, I was glad that she passed away because I knew she wasn't getting beaten anymore in the realm. Like you know, that's yeah, a terrible yeah. thing to think. But she wasn't getting beaten anymore because that poor woman was beaten every night within an inch of her life. You know, I've seen my mother laying on the floor on those old black and white lino tiles in pools of blood where my father would just kick her and kick her in the... um, She had really bad hemorrhoids, no wonder, because he used to kick her all the time. And... um, one night he kicked her so badly that he burst her hemorrhoids and she was laying in a pool of blood and um, just things like that that we've seen on a nightly basis, like absolutely horrendous stuff. Like, you know, it's only since I got sober that I realised why I went down the path I did with drugs and alcohol. Like, um, you know, I was just trying to black it all out. I was trying to forget all the horror that I've seen and even to this day I still hear my mum's screams and I think they were the worst, the screams that used to, um, when she was screaming for her life and um, now now I've learnt to channel those thoughts. Like if they come, if they come upon me, now I'll do something to distract myself and take my thoughts away from my mother's screams. Um, whereas before when I was in addiction, like, uh, you know, I would just take more drugs and drink more alcohol and just, you know, um, self-sabotage myself, um, you know, and, um, yeah. And, and see, this is what I, this is why I am so passionate about domestic and family violence because what happens is that, People like yourself, you can't deal with it. Who could? But you can't deal with it. So what happens is it's no surprise that you would use some sort of a um, advice to help you manage the the screams in your head that you can hear from your mum, uh, just all the stuff going on. No wonder people turn to some sort of vice to help them get through that. And that if 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 kids um, are what's the word? Um, uh, can't think of the word saved, let's say, from that early on, well then you're not going to get as much damage to those to children as they grow into teenagers and adults. Like it is just oh it's so sad. Uh, Robin, what about your schooling, did it interrupt your schooling with all this uh, abuse? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I sort of um, just remember from a young age always getting into trouble. Like I was always getting caned, like um, right, you know, in the early stages like primary school, I was always up at the principal's office, me and my my siblings, so we'd be all parked in the hallway, like lined up waiting to get the cane back in the day when they used to cane you. And so we were going to school and we were getting punished at school because we didn't know how to live. Like that's how all we knew how to live was, you know, um, just mm. so we were getting beat, you know, getting the cane at school as well. And um, 
God, yeah, you couldn't uh, get away from you, you no. couldn't get away from it, could you? And then when I went on to high school, I was really badly bullied around, like absolutely just tormented, like, and I didn't want to go to school. So quite a few of us, we used to um, go and wag. We found an old shack up the up the road and had a dam and stuff, and we used to go up there and we'd hang out in the, this old shack. We'd pretend that we'd been at school all day, but we could go there and we could. Um, get away from everything. We didn't have to put up with, you know, getting into trouble at school because we didn't know how to behave because we'd never been, you know, taught right mm. from wrong. We'd never been nurtured. Um, and so we would go and hang out in this um, shack and um, then go home in the afternoon like we'd been at school all day and obviously there was no truancy um, laws then or, you know, no one no apps or some, you know, sending through a message saying, hello, your children aren't at school today, you know. So we sort of could get away with it. But um, I hated going to school in because, like, not only was I bullied at home, you know, I was getting in trouble getting caned by the, t uh, the teacher or the principal and then I was getting bullied by the kids. So, you know, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty messed up, Narell. Oh, yeah. Oh, Robin, it's so sad. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Uh, Robin, what were you bullied? Do you know why you were bullied? About what? Yeah, because we were... Um we used to have to go to the tip, Narelle. We used to have to go to the tip and get food and um, clothes and shoes. And I remember, like, going to the tip one time and I found a pair of old desert boots. They weren't old. They, they were quite, well, for me, they were quite, um, 
they're in good shape. And um, But the only problem was, Narelle, they were about two sizes too small for me. So I didn't have any shoes, so I used to wear these desert boots to school and in the in the assembly all lined up when the, you know, the principal would address the assembly for the morning before class. The kids used to stomp on my toes and they'd say, not so squishy. And, you know, uh, they knew that we used to get our stuff from the dump, like we'd have to get our clothes and our shoes and our food from the tip. And, um, yeah, so um, that's why we were different. That's why... That's why people picked on us. Like we had to get our hair cut. Like um, our mother used to cut our hair. Like our clothes were all dishevelled. Like we were dirty, you know. Like um, our teeth weren't clean. We were never taught to brush our teeth. We were never taught like any basic hygiene, Narelle. Um Yeah, it's, it's just terrible. And so the kids used to pick on us because they knew we used to go to the tip and stuff like that. And um, yeah, it was terrible. We just hated school, Narell. We hated it. I wonder why. Yeah, absolutely. What did your dad do for a job? Did he was he employed, Robin? Yeah, he was always employed. He was a hard worker. He was a shearer, um, and you know most people know the old saying with the shearer, work hard, drink hard. Um, but yeah, he was a shearer, and actually, my father's nickname was. Um, Friendly Fred Norell. Everyone called him Friendly Fred because when he was sober, he was the nicest bloke. Like, he'd do anything for anyone. He was, like, happy-go-lucky. As soon as that man put a drink to his lips, he changed. He changed into a monster. He just became very violent and very angry. And, um, yeah, yeah. But everyone sort of came to him, like, if they wanted anything done. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, Robin, at 15, uh, you tried pot. And to be honest, I'm not condoning it. I'm just saying no bloody wonder. But just anything, I suppose, to escape this uh, this prison almost that you're in. But it, And it was really the beginning of the end, wasn't it? Can you tell us about that? Well, I'd been, my sisters and I and brothers, we'd been experimenting with alcohol and cigarettes for quite a few years. Like, you know, I can remember when we were about 10, we were experimenting with, you know, taking alcohol and stuff when the parents had passed out drunk. And, um, but yeah, then when I was 15, I went to Sydney to stay with my, um, my city cousins and, um, they, you know, they had, pretty good childhood and you know they were they were out having fun and they um they smoked marijuana which was um i was offered when i went down there and um my cousin said to, to me oh cuz this will make you feel really good and um anyway i was a bit scared to, to smoke it but um you know big bad drugs you know that whole that whole mm. thing and um so yeah i had to smoke of it and um yeah, he was right. It, it took away, like, all my inhibitions. Like, um, yeah, um, as I said to you before, I was very shy, very shy person. It, like, it, it made me sort of come out of my shell and um, I noticed very quickly that it, 
I stopped thinking about the violence I got. You know what I mean? Like when, when I was high on marijuana, I wasn't thinking about the violence as much. I was, you know, I was happier and, um, yeah, so that's where that started. And I, I went on to have a love affair with marijuana for, yeah, almost 40 years. It was obviously an escape for you. And um, we'll go into that in a minute, but you also just mentioned there your parents uh, were drinking. Did your mum drink as well? Well, I think poor old mum used to have to get drunk just to um, put up with it. Yes, yeah, I understand. I remember when my father would be at the the pub, like she would get people to sneak her alcohol and – yeah, and then he would come home and um, I think that was her way of coping as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how else? I mean, in those days, I think that's how you coped. You didn't have the support services that you do these days. But, um, again, I'm not condoning drinking alcohol, but I think most people could understand that in such a violent household that, you would almost do anything to escape or prepare, you know, for what you knew was coming. And so can you share with us, you said that you had a love affair with marijuana for the next four decades or so, I think you said. So those years from 15 onwards, your life obviously spiralled out of control. Can you tell us what was happening? Um. Well, when I smoked the marijuana, that was fine. That wasn't the problem. It was when I was 17, I was introduced to a drug called Speed, um, the old bikey Speed, and um, straight away, same thing. I just loved it. Like, it made me feel good. Like, it took me to another level, like a different level from the pot, and I just loved it. And um, so, yeah, once that needle sort of came into play, that was a whole a whole new ball game. And I suppose then the only thing you were interested in was finding your next hit. I'm almost frightened to ask, but I will. So how did you, because that's not cheap, how did you sustain all, uh, buying all these drugs? How did you find the money? Uh, For me, like, I pretty much started selling marijuana, like, um, not straight away, but like when I was about 17, 18, I I worked out pretty quickly that um, I could sell marijuana and I could make money out of it. I could get my marijuana for free. Um, And so that's what I did. But then later on, um, I became a prolific shoplifter and... um, I would um, go into a shop and I would fill up a trolley full of um, really expensive products and um, I would just walk out the door with them. And so between the marijuana, the selling of the marijuana and the shoplifting, like, um, yeah, I could support myself. And what did you do with the clothes? Like did you sell them I don't know, at markets or how did that sustain your drug use? Um, it's, um, I used to have, like, um, people that I could contact and uh, that sold drugs, like drug dealers, and they oh, would yeah. tell yeah. me they would tell me what they wanted. Like, they'd say, like, you know, we need 
you know, linen or we need like meat or we need clothes like um, Christmas time, any sort of Christmas, like, um, you know, um, any sort of celebration day, um, you know, I'd get orders for people's um, birthdays and, um, and so I would swap um I would swap the goods for either money and drugs or, you know, um, just drugs. Um, yeah, so that's that's how it all went. I, I know um, I have a friend who worked in the uh, panel uh, industry, panel beating industry, and he's told me that he would work at, I don't know, wherever it was in Inner Melbourne, and guys had come in and reverse into the panel beating shop and they'd have, uh, I don't know, stereos or, you know, all sorts of different items and they almost did bergs for on order. So somebody would want, as you're just saying then, somebody would want some uh, a special, oh, I don't know, a motorbike. So they'd go and do a berg and get a motorbike and, you know, it, it's they'd sell stuff from the back of their car, which obviously sounds like what uh, what you were doing. But, but so what you said was that you were addicted to ice for 15 of your 37 years and you were in a drug hell. Uh, which it obviously sounds like. What's it like to be in a drug hell? Uh, it's just like it, like it sounds, Narelle. It's um, it's you're just in this um, addiction. You just can't get out. Like you, every day you say like, I hate this. I, you know, I don't want to do this, and you, you just don't have any control, Narelle. Like um, you know it. It'd be get up, go and um, you'd have to go and um, find the the um, financial means, or you know, get get some goods or something to to mm. barter for drugs. You'd have to do that. Um, it was like a full time job, and then um, you'd get the drug, and as soon as you'd have it, you'd be like, "Oh my lord, why did I do that? Now I'm going to spend the next two or three days wide awake." Like, and just, I used to pick my skin really badly. Like, I used to be one of those people that, like, would have, like, the um, the ice worm or the ice mites, whatever they call it. And, um, yeah, I would be just scratching my skin. As soon as I'd have a, um, a shot, I would just start scratching my skin. And so, like, I could do that for days on end and I'd be just covered in sores. My body would be covered in sores and... Um, so oh. Oh, it was terrible. And then, you know, um, you'd get up and you'd do it all over again the next day. Like it was just a vicious cycle. Like there wasn't any fun. I hated it, Narelle. Like, I know you say that, but you hated it, but you were able to live, well, not able, you lived that life for four decades nearly. Like, wow. Uh, yeah, I... You know, I suppose I'm assuming that you got to the point where you had nothing, where you had no one and you felt so helpless and so lost. But, God, in those, in those let's say, those four decades, what was the lowest point of your life? And, uh, I mean, I'm up, there must have been so many, but is there a, anything that really stands out? Um, 
yeah, there was a lot of low times, Narelle, but, like, I've had um, some horrendous things happen to me, like, in a couple-of-year period. Um, for example, I had um, I had a partner that got murdered with another friend. Um, they got shot and murdered um, in Canberra in um, 2008. And then um, uh, not long after that, oh, a few years after that, sorry, I shouldn't say not long after that, a few years after that, I um, I um, had a really good friend and he had really bad depression and um, he doused himself with fuel in the back of his van and set himself on fire and um, he'd actually tried to call me the night that he did it and I was too high to answer the phone. And so he doused himself um, and ended his life. And then just after that, I um, got involved with the guy. I started um, buying marijuana off this guy and um, didn't realise what sort of um, character that I was dealing with. But um, until one morning at 8 o'clock in the morning, some um, couple of detectives knocked on my door and said that we've just arrested your boyfriend for a cold case murder and um, they said we've had you like under surveillance, we've been like recording you um, yeah and this guy that I was seeing, he had um, murdered 10 years earlier him and some other people, three other people had um, murdered this woman over an ounce of marijuana, they um, beat her to death with a hammer and, um, yeah, just all this sort of stuff was like um, that's what my life had become, you know, just um, all these really bad and violent things were going on. And, um, yeah, so I have seen, seen a lot, Narelle. Was there ever a point where you thought this is all too hard and you wanted to end all the, this pain and all this sadness and just helplessness? Oh, absolutely. Towards the end, like, you know, I was suicidal on a weekly basis. I'd been put into, um, went into a couple of mental health wards and, um, yeah, I just wanted to die in a row. I just, I just, my life just got to the point where I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. My family, I didn't have any family support and, um, you know, I was living in a, um, I owned a house in a, a gated community in a um, caravan park and um, I couldn't tell anyone, like, what was going on and, um, yeah, I, um, yeah, I just wanted to die in the row. And I also after Greg had been murdered, um, my partner, um, I was um, prescribed a drug called Seroquel, which um, it sort of, like, um, knocks you out because, um, yeah, my anxiety was so bad, like with Greg's murder, that, um, you know, I got prescribed this drug, but they didn't tell me that it was, like, a major suicidal and they didn't tell me, like, they had all these really bad side effects. And um, so I was four years on that drug and, um, yeah, and in those four years, like, all I thought about was, like, um, was um, ending it all and, um, you know, I, I had a couple of attempts. I, I took some um, some drugs and um, tried to overdose and, um, 
yeah, when I was in the mental health ward, I um, got my shoelaces out of the um, my Ugg boots. I had a big, thick pair of shoelaces, and I tried to um, hang myself. And um, yeah, it was pretty bad, Narelle. Um Yeah. Yeah, I can I can hear that, R- Robin. The the death of Greg and um, was that all drug related? Do you know? And uh, it's that you said something about I got a bit lost that's with right. all that's happened. But somebody was shot as well. Um, was that all drug related? Yeah, yeah. It was over a um, marijuana grow room. Um, uh, next thing you know, Greg and Rick were shot dead in the um, in the street. God, you've really been surrounded from when you were, you know, first brought into the world. You've just been surrounded by violence. Just it's hard to get my head around, to be honest. Um, and the the partner that was arrested for the murder of the woman was did you ever well number one is did that surprise you like did you ever see any indications like was he violent with you um well I sort of started putting things together two and two together because he kept talking about it all the time and he kept getting paranoid and he um, one night, like, he said, oh, there's someone out there in a boat and they're looking at us, you know, and it was the middle of the night and I was like, I'll stop it, don't be ridiculous. And I was actually laughing at him. And um, But I didn't know that, you know, I, I just had my suspicions that something wasn't right, what he was saying. He kept talking about this murder. So I started doing some research about this murder and, um yeah, and then when I questioned him about it, Narelle, he said to me, and I'll never forget it, he said, there's a spot in the bush for everybody. And it just put the cold shivers up me. And I'd actually I'd actually broken up with him. I ended it with him on the Friday. And then it was the Monday morning that the detectives turned up on my doorstep. And, um, yeah, they'd had us, um, they'd been... Um, recording our conversations and everything and um yeah I guess I realized when I'd that I'd broken it off with him that they probably weren't going to get anything more and they went in and arrested him um but um yeah it was pretty tough time and then he he got a letter out of jail he sent a letter to me um turned up um in my mailbox um but someone else had to have delivered it to there, but I don't know how he got it out. But, um, yeah, he told me that he knew I'd been dis- conspiring with the detectives and, yeah, it was a really scary time for me, Narelle. I didn't know whether he was going to have me murdered or, yeah, mm. it was mm. pretty full on. <sighs> full on, yes, it certainly was. It's full on just listening to it, to be honest, Robin. Boy, when Robin says that it was full on, (laughs) she is not kidding. Uh, When Robin contacted me to suggest maybe having her as a guest, she provided me with uh, some articles uh, which highlighted her achievements. But until I spoke with her in depth in this podcast, I never imagined it would be quite as traumatic as she has shared with us. You'd never guess her struggles looking at the photos that she sent me. 
However, the photos have been taken since she's been clean, which is an incredible seven years. Robin tells us next week about the day a prank played on her by some neighbours in a caravan park where she was living made her realise that if she didn't do something, she'd probably die in the caravan with nobody and nothing but self-loathing and depression that she just couldn't live with anymore. She'd tried everything previously, but this prank and a course that her doctor put her onto made her do something. And years later, she found those people who'd done the prank in the caravan park and she thanked them for what they'd done for her. Next week is more about Robin's recovery, her discovery of another world without violence, without drugs and without her other many addictions. She has discovered a world of love, happiness and contentment, which she only ever dreamed of, never thought she'd find it. It's pretty amazing, isn't she? Uh, She's even given evidence at the Royal Commission into ICE and lobbied the government to get changes so that people can access facilities and try and get into rehab and get the treatment that they need. What a turnaround. All right, thank you. Have a great week and we'll talk next week. Thank you. As you've probably noticed, we've moved to a new platform called ACAST. I think that's the right expression, I've got no idea. And my previous reviews haven't transferred over. I need reviews. (laughs) Could you do me a favour and put up a review? And thank you so much for your support and patronage. With your help, I can give you that little bit extra. Thanks. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.